continue with our study of the epistle, the first epistle of John, the Apostle John. So if you have your Bibles with you, please open with me. In 1 John chapter 1, we will be reading from verses 5 to 10. 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 to 10. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. That God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Verses 1 to 4 this morning was about the believer's fellowship with Jesus Christ, the Word of Life. We also learned that the preeminence of Christ, or Jesus Christ being first and foremost, and His incarnation being the Word of Life, are two solid evidences that support the deity and humanity of Jesus Christ, that He is truly and fully God, and that is truly and fully man. Now, on these doctrines founded the mediatory work of Christ. The gospel the apostles proclaimed was about the Word, which was from the beginning who was made manifest. Jesus, who is God, became man to be the mediator for sinners. So those who believe in Him can have forgiveness for their sins and receive eternal life. God can save and man cannot. But man can shed blood and God cannot. And Jesus Christ being fully and truly God and being fully and truly man is the perfect mediator between God and man. But you see, the eternality and the humanity of Christ are as practical as they can get. We are saved to receive eternal life because Christ is eternal. And we are also saved to live our lives in the here and now to God's glory just as how Christ in His humanity lived in obedience to His heavenly Father. The preeminence of Christ and His humanity are foundational doctrines both in our justification and in our sanctification. The Westminster Confession says, So that two whole perfect and distinct natures 
the Godhead and the manhood were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion. Which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man? Praise be to God. And this evening, we will look at the succeeding verses of First John chapter 1, picking up from this morning's passage, and we now take a look at verses 5 to 10. Now, I have two points as well. Number one, proclaiming the God of light. The key phrase, holy God. The second point is perpetual confessing of our sins. The key phrase is holy life. Now, for the first point, proclaiming the God of light, the holy God, from verses 5 to 7, it says in verse 5, This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. Beloved, it is very interesting that the Apostle John summarized the message that he was talking about in the first four verses that they have heard and received from Jesus Christ, he summarizes in one sentence. That God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. The message of the gospel is undoubtedly centered on the holiness of God. And when John speaks of God being the light, he is basically speaking about the holiness of God. Now, I am a missionary's kid. And we have been to a lot of uh, places in the Philippines. If you don't know, the Philippines has more than 7,000 islands. And one of the major islands in the southern Philippines, a lot of communities were Muslim communities. And um, they've been missionaries. My parents have been missionaries for the past 40 years until now. And I've shared this morning that my parents are not actually reformed. And so me and my father argue a lot in you know the fundamental doctrines that the reformed faith believe, but we're best friends. We're best friend best frenemies. But yeah, they are not reformed. They are actually a combination of Arminianism and Baptist. Okay? I was talking to the consistory before the uh, evening service starts and I was explaining that the churches in the Philippines are not Arminians in the sense of what Arminianism strictly mean hundreds of years ago in the Remonstrance and of course the Belgic Confessions answer to the Remonstrance. The Arminianism in the Philippines is a mixed bag. They are evangelical churches who hold to the once save, always save doctrine, but at the same time believe that faith precedes regeneration. And, and they also believe that Christ died for every individual. Unlike in our tradition, we believe that Christ died for his church. So growing up, I have been trained in their way how to evangelize. I was born living in a 
pastoral parsonage. Always five steps from the church. I literally spent my six elementary years in six different schools, in three different municipalities, and with three different dialects. So in the Philippines, we have hundreds of dialects, if you're not familiar. So Filipino is the main language in the Philippines, but not everyone speaks Filipinos because they have their own dialects. And one dialect is totally different from another one. It's like a totally different language. And so, growing up in a Muslim community, we have been trained how to evangelize. Okay? And while I know my parents to have a very pure in- intention in proclaiming the gospel, but the way they were taught how to evangelize is really focused on the person's decision to let Jesus into his or her heart. I know you're familiar with that, and that is, of course, through the infamous sinner's prayer. We actually have a whiteboard after an evangelistic, uh, it's either evangelistic um, movie showing or house-to-house evangelistic, we will get back home and write the names of those persons who repeated the sinner's prayer. And we would label them as saved. And those who did not pray the sinner's prayers are not saved. So you see, it's very focused on man's decision. Now, Jonathan Edwards, in his evangelistic message... Sinners in the hands of an angry God encapsulates why the gospel is good news. And there are two images from his message I will never forget. He said that outside of Jesus Christ, you are basically at the mercy of God. That his righteous hands should throw you into hell to punish you for your sins. But they are the same hands that are still preventing you from being thrown to hell. Wretched sinners, we have offended the holy God. And it is not really dependent on our decisions whether we will be able to escape His consuming fire or not. There is nothing that we can do outside of Christ that will move the hands of God to save us and to spare us of hell. But the good news is that Jesus Christ, who is God in His incarnation, lived the perfect life that we cannot live and died the death that we should have died. He rose again from the dead to vindicate what His death has accomplished. That's the reason we are saved. Not only that, He ascended into the heavens and seated at the right hand of God to intercede for our sanctification. So that when you see Him someday, when you enter glory, you will become like Him as you enter God's eternal rest. So we see the Apostle John witnessed the death of Christ on the cross. And it was God's holiness being satisfied. We have a favorite doctrinal term for that. We call that the death of Christ is the propitiation for our sins, right? 
that God satisfied His wrath through the death of His own Son. It means that God saved us from Himself. Beloved, it is never about who we are, what we have, and what we have done that makes us partakers of eternal life. It is because God is light, and in Him there is no darkness. And this truth about the gospel, being about the holiness of God, is foundational with what the Apostle John is about to say in the following verse. He said, If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So the gospel message is about the holiness of God. And it is impossible for anyone to receive this powerful message without being transformed. And what we simply mean by that is having a change of heart. That while it is true that we are still in this sin-infested body, in this sin-sick world, the Spirit of God helps us to mortify the flesh day in and day out. If we are still living in sin, in sinfulness, then that is a clear subjective evidence that we are not children of God. John summarized the gospel message in those three words. God is light. God is holy. And if that is true, then those who receive the goodness of salvation must walk in the light. Look at verse 7. It says here, But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. It makes sense. And now, considering the context, the Apostle John was writing to a congregation who were facing an issue regarding the false teaching, which we talked about this morning. And this false teaching believes that the Spirit is good and matter is evil. So in effect, the logic of Gnosticism is that it's okay to indulge yourselves to worldliness because flesh is evil. And what's important for them is to acquire that special knowledge that will save their souls. They, there, there was a dichotomy between the spirit and flesh. And modern scholars believe that John's opponents held on to a high Christology, not in a positive sense, but in a very negative sense. High Christology position which elevates the divinity of Christ at the expense of His humanity. Like what I said, Docetism, or the false teaching, an early form of Gnosticism, believes that Jesus did not have a real and true body. He seemed to have a true body, but he did not. And we know that has a big problem in terms of the accomplishments of Christ's death on the cross. 
there is a problem with penal substitution, as I have shared this morning. Right? There's a problem with substitutionary atonement. If he did not have a real body, there was no substitution that occurred. It has a problem with the propitiation of his death. Why? Because God's wrath is satisfied when the demands of the law is given. And the demand of the law is that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So you see, Gnosticism dichotomizes the spirit and flesh. And we always say that right doctrines go hand in hand with right practices. Orthodoxy goes hand in hand with orthopraxies. Right doctrines, right right practices. Right doctrines must produce right practices. And right uh, wrong doctrines always end up with wrong practices. Exhibit A, Gnosticism. They believe that the flesh is evil, therefore they indulge themselves into worldliness. That's why when you look at the book of John, you will see every after three to four verses, John would say, this is how you know that you are true believers, that you walk in the light, that you live in righteousness and in holiness, that you do not walk in darkness. Right doctrines must produce right practices. Now, the danger of the false teaching they were facing is to give everyone license to sin and not care about holiness. Right? Come to think of it, it pretty much summarizes what we are observing in modern evangelicalism. A divorce between spirituality and practicality. And that should tell us why general assemblies of denominations, even reformed denominations, are getting more scary. Because we now tend to sacrifice our rich tradition and amend historical confessions in order to cater to innovations that waters down the gospel. When methodologies become theology, liberalism creeps into the church. When sinfulness is treated lightly, then let us not be surprised if the next generation will see no distinction between religious piety and the world. We have the scripture that serves as a fence to protect us from worldliness. But when we remove those fences one by one in order for us to be relevant, in order for us to be peacemakers, then the church is in trouble of succumbing to liberalism. Beloved, let us preach the gospel and let us preach the gospel of God's holiness. We have to offend sinners because they have offended our holy God. There is no way around that. 
drought. This is the message that we have heard and received from the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle John said that God is light. And therefore, as we proclaim this message into the world, it's impossible to preach the gospel without offending the flesh. The gospel is offensive because God is holy and the world is is sinful. The gospel is good news because we have sinned against God. And our sinfulness must be exposed. It must be pointed out. Light reveals and discloses. It removes the veils covering our eyes into seeing the glory of God. And it is not separate from exposing our sinfulness. The goal of justification is our union and devotion to God. And if that is the case, then separation must be established. What is the holiness of God? Let's define the term. It's, it's hard. Parsi Sproul wrote a good book on the holiness of God. And so it's hard for us to define it in one sentence. But let us try. The holiness of God is the pure devotion of the Holy Father with the Holy Son, and with the Holy Spirit. There is no separation within them. If the goal is union and devotion to God, then preaching God as light is not presenting a holiness that is mechanical. Proclaiming the God who is personal is what the holiness of God implies. And we have the best illustration for that in verses 1 to 4. The word was made manifest. And therefore, if the holiness of God is that unadulterated relationship between the Father, Son, and Spirit, and if we claim that we are united with Christ, and that the Spirit dwells in us, and that Christ and the Father dwell in us, then what it means for us to live, to live a holy life is to be separated from the world and be united with God. Preaching the holiness of God for the sinner's reconciliation with Him in the light of being united with Christ, it will definitely change the way we preach the gospel and it will definitely change how we view our sanctification. There is no way that the Apostle John was teaching sinless perfection Christianity. Let's make that clear. We're not saying that the Apostle John was teaching sinless Christianity, that in order for us to live a holy life is to be able to be sinless in this life. No, that is false. What he said in verse 7, as people who have been cleansed from all our sin is that we walk in the light. So there must be no separation between our justification and sanctification. Yes, we distinguish between the two, but we do not separate them. Justification is a great indicative, and sanctification is its natural imperative. 
To walk in light can also be understood in the practical purpose of a light. It makes you see things clearly. And sinless perfection is unrealistic. Okay? Christ dwells in us. That's true. But it is equally true that sinful nature dwells in us as well. And we hope to finally be saved from the presence of sin when we are given new and glorified bodies. So it is not sinless perfection. In fact, in verse 8, the Apostle John acknowledged the presence of sin in our lives. Let's read it. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Therefore, our walking in the light does not mean that there is, you know, though we are expected to be more holy than yesterday, okay, concretely speaking, it is being more aware of our sinfulness and our tendencies. And from there, we respond accordingly by the guidance of the Scripture and by the power of the Holy Spirit in repentance. So follow me here. God is light. And to be united with Christ is to receive the good news of the holiness of God. And the implication and application for us is to live a holy life. But it doesn't mean that we are teaching sinless perfection. What it means is that we strive now to live a life of repentance. Walking in the light does not mean that we will be perfect in this life. Walking in the light is being made aware of the presence of God in our lives or our lives in the presence of God. That's what Coram Deo means to live in the face of God. God is light and we are to live a life of repentance. And this brings us to our second and last point to be to be consistently walking in the light is to perpetually confess our sins. And that is the holy life. So point number two, a perpetual confessing of our sins. Holy life. Now, it is wrong to think that an evidence of real conversion okay, is that we are repenting of our sins less and less. Someone might say, if you're a true Christian, then you must be repenting less and less because you are living more holy day after day. Well, not really. Because to repent of our sins more and more is an indication okay, that we are growing in our knowledge of how sinful we are before the Holy God. That's why in verse 8 it says here, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. It's actually the contrary. Growing in holiness is seen in how much we repent of our sins. What? 
you are repenting more of your sins, does it mean you are sinning more? No. It doesn't mean like that. What it means is that as we grow in the knowledge of grace, as we grow in the knowledge of God's holiness, we repent more of our sins. Because growing in the fellowship with God and our knowledge of Him through His Word will bring about an ongoing, though painful, daily revelation of our sins. Layer after layer, one by one, being exposed. We do not have an idea how sinful we are and how sinful we can be. And they, they might be hidden to the public, right? Sins that are hidden to the public. Even hidden to us. Sins that are exposed. Sins that we are not aware are there. Obvious sins and not so obvious sins. And even sins in our practice of good and godly things. What? Is that possible? Yes. You can be a minister of God and still live a very hypocritical life. You can be coming here every Sunday attentively listening but living another life outside of this local congregation. We are to repent of these sins. We are to mortify our flesh every day. So to perpetually confess our sins is a clear evidence, a clear proof that we are indeed walking in the light. That's my proposition for you, brothers and sisters in Christ, tonight. Grow in our repentance of our sins. And verse 9 gives a wonderful concrete evidence of our assurance of faith. So if you read the book of John, 1 John, you will see two things. Subjective evidences and concrete evidences for the assurance of our salvation. And you will see you can summarize the subjective evidences in two. Walking in holiness and loving your brethren. Okay? Now, on the other hand, the objective evidences of our assurance of faith is founded in the finished work of Christ. And now in verse 9, John is giving us a very solid, concrete, objective evidence of our assurance of faith. It says here, If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is faithful and just. This is the part of the Christian life that is really frustrating, humanly speaking. Because in our heart of hearts, we want to glorify God in everything, right? We want to love God with everything. But at the same time, sinful thoughts, sinful emotions, sinful urges are also actively making their presence known in our lives. 
And that is the reason why we always need the gospel. We cannot uh, outgrow our need of the gospel. That is why every Lord's Day, the gospel must be proclaimed. Because it's not only for the salvation of sinners, it's also good news for the sanctification of the saints. As Martin Luther puts it, Simul justus et peccator at the same time just and a sinner. It's the reality of the Christian life. We struggle with sin every day. And so, the Apostle John is telling us to confess our sins to God. And he is faithful and just to forgive us. Now, if you read verse 10, it says, If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. There is a seemingly contradiction with the idea of God being light, and those who have fellowship with him should not walk in darkness, but walks in the light. Between what he is saying, that we should acknowledge that we are sinners and that we sin because we are sinners. And so we have to confess our sins to be forgiven. So as you read through the book of John, you will see him give subjective evidences, walk in the light, walk in righteousness, walk in holiness. But he will also give us objective promises for our assurance. If you sin, confess your sins. If you sin, we have a mediator between God and man that forgives us. It's a balance of subjective evidences and objective evidences for the assurance of our salvation. They are not contradiction. They are actually complementing one another. Without acknowledging the reality of our sinful nature, we will teach the false teaching of sinless perfection. On the other hand, if we use God's forgiveness as a license to continue sinning, then we are teaching antinomianism. It's lawlessness. It's basically what Gnosticism is all about. Now, B.B. Warfield called this the miserable sinner Christianity. Warfield argues that a believer continue to experience in their life sin and grace. And we are to be mindful of that every waking moment of our lives. But though he calls Christians miserable sinners, he also believes that we are truly perfect in our status before God in Christ. And on this, he rejoices. Let me read what he said about this subject matter. He said, We are always unworthy, and all that we have or do of good is always of pure grace. Though blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly in Christ, we are still in ourselves just miserable sinners. Miserable sinners, saved by grace to be sure, but miserable sinners still, deserving in ourselves nothing but everlasting wrath. He continued, we are sinners, and we know ourselves to be sinners, lost and helpless in ourselves. But we are saved sinners, 
And it is our salvation which gives tone to our life, a tone of joy which swells in exact proportion to the sense we have of our ill desert. For it is he to whom much is given who loves much, and who, loving, rejoices much. Truly, beloved, though we are Christians who are still miserable sinners, we rejoice because our confidence is in the faithfulness and the justice of God. This is the gospel. God is faithful to himself and his covenant that he forgives penitent, believing confessors. And that this grace is grounded on his justice being served and satisfied through the penal, substitutionary, atoning death of his Son, Jesus Christ. Praise be to God. To be miserable sinners, how frustrating it may be, we continue to confess our sins, knowing the hope that we have of being saved from its presence when we finally enter eternal glory. So brothers and sisters, the word of God charge us this, mo- this evening to live in light, to live in holiness. But I know it's frustrating, right? That there will be days that we will be tempted heavily and we will fail and we will fall. But remember that the gospel is good news. In our foolishness, Jesus is the wisdom and the power of God. In our shortcomings, God remains faithful. In our weaknesses, Jesus gives us strength. God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Now another application, as the, as the Apostle John has emphasized in verses 3 and 7, regarding our fellowship with one another, it is very practical to put emphasis on the importance of living in fellowship as penitent believing confessors. So it's not only a personal pursuit for us to grow in the knowledge of grace. And as we grow in the knowledge of grace, we grow in the knowledge of our sinfulness. And as we do that, we grow in our our living a life of repentance. But it's also important to notice that John was giving emphasis to the community of believers that he is writing to. Therefore, we can assume that as an implication of verse 9, confessing our sins is never divorced from our congregational life. Does that make sense? It's a very important doctrine to remember that while it is true that each of us is responsible in mortifying our own sins as we grow in our fellowship with God. But remember, we are also called to spur one another, grow one another, pray for one another, encourage one another, correct one another, 
And there may be times that we need to confess our faults and failures to one another. When we became part of our church in the Philippines two years back, we were faced with a very painful experience in that the church had to excommunicate one of the members. We were just there for three months and then it was announced that there is a former church member who will be excommunicated because he was unrepentant of his sin. It was really painful for everyone. But at the same time, me and my wife were talking on our way home and we're really thankful to God that we are part of that church that will deal with sin biblically and seriously. And that is one of the purposes of this family here. We are not just here to wear our suit and tie and listen to God's word preached. We are here to be moved by the preaching of God's word and respond by worshiping God, obeying his word, and growing in holiness. And that could mean for us to confess our sins with one another. Our elders and leaders of this church are very much, for sure, I can assume, willing to alongside overcome evil with all of us. As a pastor's kid growing up, there's always the temptation to look okay in front of the people, right? Because they're expecting the family of a pastor to be one level ahead of everyone in terms of almost anything. And I believe the church is not designed for that kind of mentality. We come here broken and we come here from our stresses from the world throughout those six days of the week and we come here to rest in the presence of God and with God's people and to be spurred by the faithful preaching of the word and the faithful administration of the sacraments. And one of the most practical ways we can do that is by helping one another in our pursuit of godliness. So there will be time that we need to confess our sins. Growing up in a church, we saw a lot of people get a hiatus, a rest from the church because they have some family problems and issues and morality issues that they need to fix first before they can go back to the church. It should be the other way around. If you are facing in your family problems and issues, this is the best place to 
be ministered to and to be helped. Practically speaking, the idea that light exposes sin could mean that there are times we confess our failures and faults to one another in order for us to be helped. One of the most terrible feelings is to have a secret sin, the feeling of guilt, and then you hesitate to confess it to others because you already feel bad about it and you worry what would others think of you if they learned about it. Remember, loving the world is the opposite of loving your brothers in Christ. Let me propose that this evening. In the light of this wonderful truth that we grow in holiness as a congregation, it's important to understand that if you read the logic of John in writing his epistle and these two subjective evidences, they are not mutually exclusive. To walk in righteousness and to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. And here's the logic. The more you love the world, the more you give yourself to worldliness, the less you have to give to one another. But the more you give your life to your brothers and sisters in Christ, then the less you are to give to the world. And so the more we immerse ourselves in our congregational life, then the more that we are, that we will be helped to grow in our walk in righteousness. And I would still argue that outside of our congregational life, living in holiness is impossible. God has entrusted the church through the ordinary means of grace in growing His children and spurring one another to walk in holiness. So brothers and sisters in Christ here at Faith URC, be a blessing one another and help one another in overcoming the devil. A paragraph in a song entitled, We Are God's People, says, We are a temple, the Spirit's dwelling place, formed in great weakness, a cup to hold God's grace. We die alone, for on its own, each ember loses fire. Yet joined in one, the flame burns on to give warmth and light and to inspire. Beloved, we have this fellowship with Jesus Christ, the word of life, and we have this fellowship with the God of life. May we confess with our mouth that Jesus is our Savior, our Lord, and our sustainer, and live our lives accordingly. Let us pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we come to your throne of grace in humility and confidence, founded and grounded in the person and work of your Son, Jesus Christ. We are but recipients of your grace, and we thank you for you have forgiven our sins, unworthy as we are. May you help us grow in holiness, to walk in the light, 
and not in darkness. May you help us to constantly admit our need of your sustaining grace. May you help us to grow in fellowship with your local congregation here at Faith URC. And may each of us strive to help one another to grow in holiness. May you use us to help one another in our weaknesses. And may your supremacy be made known in our lives. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name.